This is KDXI St. George, Radio St. George at 100.3 FM. And we now present to you On the Arts, an hour of discussion and discovery about the arts in St. George and Southern Utah. And now your hosts for On the Arts, Michael and Christina Harding. Good afternoon, St. George. This is Michael Harding, again, giving apologies for Christina, who I'm happy to say is out there teaching the arts to some young folks in town and uh, won't be able to join us today, but she sends her love to all out there. Now, just to remind everybody what this show is, On the Arts is an opportunity to blow the lid off of all of these little artistic secrets we have here in Southern Utah. There are all sorts of opportunities for people to participate in the arts, whether it be to try out for vocal groups or get together with musical ensembles or even try try out for plays or try their hand at ceramics or painting or drawing, all sorts of opportunities. And we want to make sure that you know about them as well as know about the opportunities to go and watch a play or hear a concert or actually experience the art on your own. Now, uh, to get things going today, we do have a very special guest. And by this, I mean somebody who I've known actually for quite a while now, somebody who I I we don't do hardcore journalism here, but somebody I got some of the goods on, uh, and this should be a lot of fun. We've got Michael Richen, an author, with us today. Michael, you there? I'm there. You've got the goods on me now. I'm now. I don't know what I'm walking into. <laughs> well, like I said, we we the don't. Good. What does that mean? The good. <laughs> I, I I'm not even sure myself. I I will oh, say just just to let everybody know, uh, Michael Richen is Christina's brother. As a matter of fact, my brother-in-law. And uh, to get things rolling on this, I just wanted to start with a little intro about the topic, the art we're going to be focusing on today. We've done a lot of talking about what is an artist. And we've also had conversations about what is a professional artist versus what is an amateur artist versus what is somebody who's just dabbling in the arts. Well, I'd like to break it down just a little bit and say there's something that makes us all human, and that's where it starts. And we all have stories. I don't care how quiet a person may happen to be or how shy a person may happen to be. Everybody's got stories. I have not met one person who doesn't have a story they like to tell, at least. And this goes all the way back to being a kid. And if you want to go into theater history, which I promise not to do, but if you wanted to, you can go all the way back to the campfire, where they were talking about the hunt and the kill, telling stories. Now, that's what makes us all human. But you go on above and beyond that, there's something that makes a storyteller an artist. And there are lots of us out there who do varying kinds of art. Uh, I happen to be an actor and a voice artist. We have musicians who tell their story through music. We have artists who tell their story through painting or ceramics or sculpture. We've had dancers on who tell their story that way. I would say there's a type of artist we haven't spent much time on, and those are the straightforward storytellers, the authors out there. And I don't know of anybody who, when they've told a story, hasn't thought, oh man, I should write that down. Or they hear somebody else tell a story and they say, oh, that would make a great children's book, or that would make a great novel, or something like that. I would say it's the artist that actually sits down and does it. And that brings me to our guest today, Michael Richen, who is uh, my brother-in-law and also Christina's brother, has actually done quite a bit of writing, and we're going to talk about the kind of writing that he's done and actually uh, point out some specific work. But I want to start out with, first of all, finding out who the heck you are, Michael Richen. <laughs> so uh, let's see, you, you are certainly living in the Pacific Northwest now, but uh, tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Who the heck are you? California, but raised in Utah, spent a uh, number of years in southern Utah, uh, not too far from where you're sitting right now, and then uh, went to high school in northern Utah, and I moved to Seattle in 1991, so I've been up in the Pacific Northwest for about 30 years now. When I lived in, in Utah, I, I really, really wanted to be a filmmaker, and I went to college a little bit and found out that the only filmmakers who counted were one to make films. So I went, you know, I'm just going to make one. <laughs> so I did. And, you know, the problem with it was, aside from that it wasn't very good and it didn't really know what I was doing, was that um, that particular attempt at being an artist versus what my friends were doing as musicians or, or writers or whatever was very expensive. It's like I had to mortgage the house to make a film at the time, you know, the video wasn't really around yet. It was all still, you know, 
16 millimeter film and it was expensive. So, uh, you know, I had to mortgage the house and I'm in debt and everything. And I've made one movie. And meanwhile, all my artist friends <laughs> are doing much, much better stuff. So I moved, I moved on from that and, uh, and had a career in it for a long time. But when a, an opportunity for a second uh, career came along, it's like, no, I want to go back and still, you know, explore the creative outlet. So I turned to writing, which, you know, listening to you talk a moment ago, writing in many cases, or in many ways, is kind of the foundation of the other arts. I mean, for an actor, there has been writing happen before. Um, for a dancer, there's some sort of writing that's occurred. Um, it, it, music involved, you know, it's written before it's performed. So it kind of is the, I, I kind of view it as the start of it all. Well, I, I have to say that I was racking my brains as I was walking over here on ways to make sure that writing took the forefront in our conversation, and I didn't have a hard time at all when I started thinking about, uh, for example, productions on Broadway. So many of them are based on the book by. So many uh, movies based on the book by, or uh, pretty much any art, like you're saying, are based on these stories that have been written down. And or a play or any script. I mean, it, it has to be written down first. Absolutely. And then from that, uh, I have a very good friend, Varlo Davenport, uh, who I've taught with for years. And actually, he moved up north, and he's doing very, very well in Salt Lake City. He is the coach of a high school group that is award-winning uh, high school group. He's doing great stuff. But I loved how he put it when he was describing what a play was and ultimately what anything written down was, is it's the scaffold on which artists can work or people can create. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, in my case, the you know you can branch out the scaffolding and create an entire universe of characters and plots and locations and things like that, which is what I've done. Um, but in a smaller case, like if you're just, let's say we're just going to sit down and write um, a play, uh, yeah, you you basically put it all together, and and then then it it becomes you know it's one thing to read a play, but it's another thing to see it staged when other artists take it and, and add to it and make it more than it is. So, yeah, uh, but you need it. You've got to have that. It's the core. I remember, I remember, uh, I can't, you know, how many people I've seen win an Academy Award or something, and they always credit uh, the writer uh, because they know without, without that solid story, it's really hard to get something out of it. Well, and I mentioned at the beginning that we want people to understand their opportunities of getting out there and participating in the arts. Uh, I think this is actually one of the great ways to start. I mentioned that everybody has a story. What's to stop you from putting it down on paper? These days, nothing. And you even mentioned... I mean, it, well, I mean, in these days, you, it won't even stop you from getting published. I mean, it used to be, you know, uh, you get a book contract. It was about as likely as, you know, having some studio approach you to make a movie right. i mean it was just extremely rare but these days now i mean it's all it's all democratized you, anybody can publish now which in my case happened to coincide you know the platforms that allow this happen to coincide with the emergence of a second career so i'm really lucky from that perspective but oh. yeah no, no nothing's stopping you i mean sit down and write that's great christina uh is very fond of telling a story to me that I've heard many, many times about you. I guess this is the hardcore journalism. Not really. But uh, she talks about a musical that you wrote when you were in school. And yeah. to this day, she absolutely loves talking about it and how clever you were with uh, when you staged it, moving the doors around and creating the setting and just having a really yeah. good time telling the story. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's heavily over, overly romanticized now. <laughs> it, was a, it was a lot of fun. I mean, at the time, you know, I, I was really lucky that that uh, some people up at uh, Box Elder High School in Brigham City uh, allowed me to write and produce my own thing when I was a senior in high school. So if they hadn't, you know, if they hadn't uh, taken that risk on me, then it would never have happened. But, yeah, I mean, uh, so I've, I've been writing for a long time, you know, music and and, and plots and stories and all that. And then... Um, of course, the film that I made was, you know, I wrote, uh, had a hand in writing that. And uh, and I've always been writing, even, uh, you know, even though I wasn't publishing. So, yeah, I, it's, it, you know, the creative outlet's been around for a long time for me, and I enjoy it. I mean, whatever it is, plays, musical, but not musical so much anymore. I mean, I, it would be a disaster to see me sing, but... 
Well, I have to say, you're much more noble than I am regarding the arts, especially when you look back. I know you say that it was a little over-romanticized, or it is a little over-romanticized now, that story you wrote. Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. I don't know if I ever told you, I didn't write for art's sake. I wrote a musical in high school called Hamlet the Rock Opera. And I'll tell you, my reason was not to create art. It was because I didn't want to read the play Hamlet, uh, I'm ashamed to admit. And when I was taking AP English, we had to do a project that showed we understood what we had read. Uh, So me and a few friends, we were big fans of Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables, which had just come out at the time. So we decided we were going to write a rock opera about Hamlet without having read it, by the way. And I have to admit, at the time, we thought it was brilliant absolutely brilliant. I did the lyrics and the music and such. I actually did pull it out two years ago just to remember. And uh, let's just say it wasn't very good. Let's leave <laughs> leave it right there. I'm not, I'm not even sure I, I would recognize what I wrote. Uh, but hey, that's an excellent way to get around an assignment. <laughs> absolutely. We got A's on it. I mean, yeah, I'll just write a rock opera. Well, I mean, as far as I know, Mrs. Supa, who was my teacher, she uh, she used it as an example for future classes of some wonderfully innovative work to show how we understood this thing. Uh, I'm I'm happy to have contributed to the education of folks behind me. Uh, what's, what's amazing is that you said you didn't even read Hamlet; you just wrote this musical. Yep. Wow. And that's a, is it, it even close? Is it even close to the story? Uh, there was a ghost and there was a character named Hamlet. Beyond that... Well, well, <laughs> you, hit the, you hit the major bullet points that most people would know. <laughs> and what kind of bugs me is that somebody came along, what, about 20 years later and wrote a, a, a Disney movie about a lion, a pride of lions, and uh, they got away with it, but I guess mine wasn't quite that good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's about, that's like in high school when I was... You know, going to fudge a, a book report, and one of the options was Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland. So I just got up and recited the whole Disney movie, right? And, and you know, the guy, the, the guy who was teaching it, he, he could see right through me. So he threw, you know, he threw a few questions at me that were just from the novel. Right. And I, you know, and I BS my way through it. Somehow I survived it, but it was. <laughs> Well, this Alice in Wonderland. Be an easy one, right? No, it wasn't easy. <laughs> That's what's great. If somebody asks you a question you don't know about Alice in Wonderland, just start reciting something like Jabberwock, and nobody'll know yeah, the difference. Yeah, something, something like that. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, these are things from our past. Let's talk about what's going on right now. Uh, you've written quite a few books. I was going over the list, and it, it's very, very impressive. Uh, the list of work that you have already. You talked about how you wanted a second career. Uh, in addition to the IT career that you had going, how did you start? Did you just sit down and say, hey, I've got this story to tell? Did you decide, hey, I'm going to craft it? Did you have the story percolating in your head for a while? How did it go? It was it was uh, percolating for a while, but my my approach to it was just a total lark. I figured, you know, I'd leave one profession, go on to another, and do this in the interim so I can say that I did. Um, but I learned a lot in writing it, and... Eventually, I, I wrote another one, and then I wrote a sequel, and it's like I started to uh, figure out the business, uh-huh. and I was able to apply, you know, the sort of approach to business that I had in my business life to writing, and that helped provide the discipline to actually make it into something that was viable. So after a while, for example, I figured out, you know, the, the original... <laughs> romantic ideal of, oh, I'll write one book every three years, and, <laughs> you know, it'll be like Thomas Pynchon, and everyone will wait for it, and, you know, but... Uh, and J.K. Rowling calls realized, you and just yeah, says what no. What I quickly realized is that, the, is that the audience for the type of thing that I write, they're, they're ravenous. They, they will devour my book in a few hours, and then they're going, hey, where's the next one? When's the next <laughs> one? You know? And so, and so it's like, okay, well, how fast can I write? I mean, let's Let's just see how many. And so I try to I try to do two, three, four books a year, depending upon how big they are. And uh, I think there was one year I managed six. But I mean, that's that's like you know, three, four thousand words a day of writing. Right. Well, and, it, and editing and and all of that on top of it. And that's and and as fast as I can publish them, they get they get snapped up by the you know my followers. So you certainly do write page turners. There is no doubt about that. Uh, and you mentioned the type of book you write. Uh, is it safe to say that you write very comfortably in the horror genre? Oh, very much so. Yeah, much. and only. 
And uh, let me every every now and again, I, I go, well, maybe I should just write something, you know, straight up mystery or just straight up, you know, dare something I else. Literature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I always come back to it because it's the most it's the most fun. Um, it's how I enjoy spending my time writing. You know? And it's you know, I'm under no illusions. I mean, this is genre fiction. It's not literature. But it's fun, and my particular style of uh, writing is, is is like you said, it's fast paced. Um, I don't I don't dwell. There's a lot of action. We move along quite quite quickly, and a lot happens. It's, so they are very brisk reads. Yeah, yeah. There's no there's no big uh, there's no long expository moment. <laughs> Let's well, oh. keep moving along here. I tried, you talk about literature and such. I tried to read, maybe this is bad that I'm admitting this over the radio, but I tried to read The Hunchback of Notre Dame and mm-hmm. I had to stop. There was a whole chapter, a whole chapter about a pillar in the cathedral. And I just thought, this guy got paid by the word. I don't know. I have no uh, interest in reading this. Yeah, see, I, I think my readers would just, they would tie me up and <laughs> You know, I'd be I'd be roasted if I did that. I wouldn't dare do that. I mean, you know, it's got to move. It's got to be quick. It's got to be, you know, let's keep this moving along. So, well, let me ask you, as an author, do you sit down with a whole story in your mind, knowing where it's going, or do you just throw caution to the wind and write what comes? That's changed over the years. Um, when I when I first started, uh, I would plot it all out pretty methodically and. The creation of the outline was a big deal, and I'd spend a lot of time on it, and then and then I would write it, and I, I, I don't know. It was um, a couple of years back. I I was just getting bored of that approach. I mean, the the actual process of writing it was tedium because it seemed as though all the creative effort was really in the in the outline, um, and so executing the outline just bored me. To t- now I know there's many authors who love that approach, but I thought, well, I'll, let's try not. Let's try not. Let's try just, uh, I've got some basic framework here, and I don't know how it's going to end any better than anyone else does, and see where it goes. And that turned out to be a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. So that's my approach now. I, I do have, I've got some, you know, five or six general points that I know the book is about, the theme, um, what I want to have happen with the characters, because most of the characters in, in my books are... Are, are you know are over all of the, they arch over all of the uh, series right so you have to it's not just about what happens in the 400 pages it's it's also it's also what happens to them three books from now but, so I, I, I I know all that but I like finding out what happened to these characters now as I write it as opposed to just executing an outline but both both approaches are great you know all kinds of arguments amongst authors as to which is the best. <laughs> well, you're not going to get an argument from me. I think that's great. Uh, I will tell you that something I found as a playwright is I'll start writing characters, and I would do what you do, really mapping it out, and I would know where the play was going and such. And I will never forget the time I was writing a play, a historical play, boy, this sounds exciting, about uh, Henry VI of <laughs> Scotland. And <laughs> it was just a, a subject I was fascinated by, but I was uh, fantasizing historically. And I created a character that was supposed to be the hero in my play. And as I was writing, I got him into a situation that James Bond couldn't have gotten out of. It was, <laughs> it was just crazy. This, it was devastating as I was sitting in the computer lab. This was over in uh, England when I was just doing this for fun. And I remember sitting at the computer. Nobody else was around. It had to be about 1130 at night. And I actually started crying because I knew I had to kill this guy. And yeah, I just thought, no, yeah, no. Has, has it, well... Or, or you you face the idea of okay, how do I back out of this rabbit hole right. <laughs> and, and go and and how many pages am I going to lose right right and how and how many of the threads that I started am I going to have to abandon to correct this and go go somewhere else with it? No, I, I know what you mean. It's it's uh, but that's part of the fun of it. And I found that when I find myself in those really awkward positions, which can be of, of two natures. They can be of what you just described, or for me, they can also be, oh, gosh, this has just gotten really boring. <laughs> this, yeah. You know yeah, it's like, no, I, this, this book, I have readers who expect something here. This can't be boring. So I'll sit on it for a couple of days, and I'll think about it, and go back and forth, 
until I come up with what I think would be a way to solve it. It's almost like a little puzzle. Right. And, uh, and, and very often, by letting it stew for a day or two, something emerges and it's like, oh, there we go. That's it. Oh, and that's far more interesting. Well, that's right. Off we go. Do, do you have characters who are your favorites that have become your friends, uh, for lack of a better way to put it now? Yeah, I mean, some of them I, I, I like a lot. And, uh, and I mean, I like all of them, but some of them I, I really enjoy. The main protagonist in the main series, Stephen, I, I like him a lot. He, he's, he starts off as a skeptic, which I am, and so I can identify with where he's coming from. And, and then uh, his father, Roy, who um, is a pretty popular character with uh, my readers, you know, he's kind of a cantankerous old man, and he, he's, he's one of those guys who just says what he thinks and doesn't care. And uh, he, he's a lot of fun to write. Um, the, the book that I wrote that just came out today, which is the 15th book in that series, um, I think you know, is one of the best uh, Roy book, uh, books there is as far as if you enjoy that character. He's a lot of fun in it. Uh-huh. So, so make sure you hop on over to Amazon. That's <laughs> called Node, N O D E. Yeah, but you want to start at the beginning. It's a series book. You have to go start at the beginning, right? Which is the bank of the river. Right. And from from there, there's a suggested reading order, and then there's 30 books ahead of you to get through the different series and the whole universe of it all. But yeah, those two characters are are primarily great ones. There's another one named uh, Deem and Wynn. They both live in in a storyline that's set in southern Utah. Mm-hmm. And their favorites of mine, I love to write them whenever I turn to one of the books in the Downwinder series. That's a blast. Um, and then I have a series that's set in a sort of Lovecraftian uh, dark world called the Dark River. And these characters can descend to it. And there's a character in that who's named Derek, who's an awful lot of fun to write, too, because of uh, the abilities that he develops over time and his attitude about them. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely, there's favorites. I, I, whenever I turn to one of the series that I've got, or, or even with a standalone, it's just a joy to pick the characters back up again, and then and uh, it's like, oh, I know these people. Well, that's where you, you're, you're very clearly good at writing series and creating these universes and such, but you just finished recently, and by recently I mean relatively recently, a standalone novel. How was it working yeah. on that? It took a lot longer. Um, with the series, if like if I, when, when I sit down to write number sixteen in the River series <laughs> right. next year or whenever, um, I've already got the char- I already know the characters. We've got a plot in place. I mean, uh, it'll it'll be a lot easier to get going with it. I don't have to spend as much time explaining things to the readers because for the most part they've read the previous books. But with a standalone like uh, the uh, the Coldwater Haunting, which was earlier this year. Um, Yet I, I had to come, everything starts from scratch again. Every character's got to get defined. Um, you have to explain everything that's going on again. And it, it wound up being my largest book, over 100,000 words, and just took a long time to put it all together. But I think it turned out pretty well. It, it's certainly been one of my best sellers. And that's a, it, there was actually a while, I don't know if this is still going on, but you were outselling Stephen King, weren't you? Oh, God, no. <laughs> 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 Did I, mean, I have that wrong? <laughs> so, no, 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 no. Well, I mean, there's times when, um, you know, I'm on the Amazon bestseller lists as far as the horror section. And that, right. And, and typically what happens is when I have a new book come out, it'll, it'll get up high on the lists. Um, and if you take a look at what the top 10 horror titles are, ghost horror fiction, that kind of thing, which is the category I'm in. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm there frequently. But that's when a new title comes out. I mean, the, the thing about Stephen King is, you know, or Neil Gaiman, some of these people, they're, they're selling every single day. Right. At the top of those lists, right? So I take that snapshot <laughs> real quick. When my name shows up right between Stephen King and Neil Gaiman, take a snapshot real quick. Hey, look. I sure will, actually, and I'll put that out there yeah. on our on the arts <laughs> website. And sure. Mike, I mean, it's thrilling to see your book sitting next to, you know, other other books that you just revere. That's right. I do. I mean. And Mike, unfortunately, we're up against uh, a hard break coming up here. Um, But I do want to invite our listeners. You can check us out on Facebook if you go to Radio St. George. Uh, On that page, you'll see a live feed. You can also find us on YouTube. And we are now going to go to some news and some other information. And we'll see you back here on On the Arts. 
Oh yeah, that's a midnight special. That's a midnight special. I'm Rich Warren, inviting you to tune in to our midnight special, folk music and farce, show tunes and satire, madness and escape. Two hours weekly, ranging from ancient ballads to cutting-edge singer-songwriters, classic Broadway shows, and the latest British comedy, all on the Midnight Special. Can you hear me, Mike? The Midnight Special, Saturday evenings from 7 till 9 on Radio St. George 100.3. Affogato Gourmet Coffee, a fine sponsor of DSU Radio. Affogato Gourmet Coffee offers gourmet coffee, smoothies, pastries, and keto-friendly offerings. Affogato Coffee with live music on Sundays. Coffee, hot chocolate, great company, and a funky environment. Behind Tropical Smoothies on 10th East and Red Hills Parkway. Affogato Gourmet Coffee. The Washington City Community Center offers American Red Cross Responder CPR and AED and First Aid training. This class is designed to teach the required skills in order to become certified in adult, child, and infant CPR and First Aid training. The next class is November 5th. Details at WashingtonCity.org. The Washington City Community Center. Something for everyone, all in one place. What's up, sports fans? I'm Easton Smith with your weekly Dixie State sports update. The women's soccer team starts the Yarmack tournament play this weekend as they head to Golden, Colorado to take on MSU Denver on Friday. Then they play the winner of Colorado School of Mines or Fort Lewis on Sunday. The men's soccer team also starts Yarmack tournament play this week as they host Westminster College this Friday at Trailblazer Stadium. Then they play again Sunday. The time, place, and opponent will be determined after this weekend's tournament play. The volleyball team heads out on the road again this week as they play at Regis on Friday and then Colorado Christian on Saturday. The football team travels out to Golden, Colorado this Saturday to take on Colorado School of Mines at noon. For more scores, news, highlights, and more, tune into Radio Dixie 91.3. Come to the Dixie State Chaos Dance October 31st from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. Buy your tickets at the campus store and you get $10 off if you bring your student ID. Follow hashtag the Dixie Life on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter for more information. Hello, I'm Dr. Glenn Webb, host of the Glenn Webb Hour from 7 to 9 on Fridays. Yes, two full hours of my favorite jazz and artists. Music from the 1920s to new jazz today. Friday evening, 7 to 9 on Radio St. George, 100.3 FM. This is Hannah with your Radio Dixie calendar for Tuesday, November 5th. From 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., there is voter registration in the Outdoor Gardener Plaza. From 12 to 1 p.m., there is Lunch and Learn in the Innovation Plaza, room 161. And from 7 to 9 p.m., there is Native American Heritage Month Dreamcatcher event in the Gardener Ballroom. And that's your calendar on Radio Dixie 91.3. Every evening from 10 till 1, it's Old Time Radio on Radio St. George, 100.3 FM. Welcome back to Radio St. George, 100.3 with On The Arts. And now your hosts, Michael and Christina Hardy. Welcome back, St. George, to On The Arts. Uh, again, Christina will not be joining us today. I'm happy to say that she is out there teaching the arts to some young, eager minds. But we do have on the line uh, the next best thing. We've got Christina's brother, my brother-in-law, Michael Rich. And you still with us, Michael? I'm still here. Now, have you got... Uh, I imagine you there in the studio, Michael, with your finger over a big red button. <laughs> and that big red button would be... This, let's this bleep is, that out. That's the five second, yeah, because this is live radio, right? Absolutely. And you know me, I'm trying my hardest here, but just as long as you got your finger by that big red button. You know what? I, I, I'm totally ready for it. I totally trust you. And uh, we actually had a guest not too long ago. This was back in, as I like to say, season three of On the Arts. We had oh, Michael Barr. Season, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a fantastic yeah. season. A real cliffhanger at the end. Uh, and Michael Barr was online, a, a very well-known name, especially in Cedar City at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Uh, but he works with kids all the time. I'll tell you, we had a lot of trouble with him, as a matter of fact. Really? Yes. Uh, it, well, that's it, completely unacceptable. Absolutely. <laughs> that's why it was a cliffhanger at the end of season three. We didn't know if we'd come back. Uh, but 
Uh, anyways, we, <laughs> we are on the line with Michael Richen, uh, a very uh, a prolific author, I should say. We're talking about the horror genre, talking about the worlds that he has created. Uh, and we will put in another plug for uh, the book that was just released today, as well as all of the other books. But I want to talk a little bit about not only the characters you've created, but what were the inspirations for these characters and these stories? What do you use to make these things happen? Well, that's a really good question. I, I think um, most authors use things that are around them. Um, you know, I've had people ask me, for example, if uh, a very popular character in one of my series named Roy was my father. No, it, it wasn't him. But there's parts of him in it. And, you know, uh, the idea for that character really came about uh, as a result of my partner's father's experiences. So there's part of him in it. And it... it you know, the characters are really an amalgam. The, the character I got set in um, in Southern Utah in my Downwinter series, who's a young woman about the age of 20, that's, that's really molded on the attributes of two or three other young women I know about that age who live down there. So there's influences like that. Um, but most of it, most of the time when, when I'm, my approach to a character comes from, you know, just what do I think would make them interesting enough to want to pay attention to what they have to say. Right. So, yeah, know, it's, it's, you know, there's certain characters you could write that no one would want to spend any time with at all. Right. So, <laughs> try, you try to make them sympathetic. Don't you hate it when you watch a TV, you start a TV show, and you, you get one or two episodes, and you go, I don't like any of these people. <laughs> yes. As you know, like... Like second season of The Walking Dead, right? Kill oh my all. gosh! I yeah, they're horrible. That's right, and I do understand The Walking Dead is still on the air, but I think the show is kind of The Walking Dead at this point. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a yeah, it still does it still does really well, but I I I don't know. I mean, it, for me, if if you don't enjoy the characters, it's really hard. I mean, if you just want to see them die, <laughs> 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 I really did season two of The Walking Dead. Please, zombies, kill these people. Right. <laughs> You should uh, write. This is me telling you what you should do. I, I know authors love that. But uh, when you want to finish the series, just write the satisfactory novel and just kill everybody in it. Everybody, yeah. Can you? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Right. Of well, course, of course. George George R. R. Martin's been making money off that for years. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and we talk about making money, just kind of like, you know. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I totally just lost any sense of cleverness that I was going to have at that point. Uh, let's just move on at this. Okay. okay. Uh, now, you mentioned you've got the Downwinder series, which, of course, has uh, local resonance. When you talk about the River series or the Dark River series, I have to admit, all I think of is the Green River Killer in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know why. But okay. when you say Downwinders... Where did that come from? What's that story? What is the relevance to here in Southern Utah? Well, I I, I got to back up just a little bit and explain the river series in order to explain the down rivers, right. down winter <laughs> series. The river the river is based on this idea of what do you mean when you say gifted? I I told you I was a skeptic, so I'm I don't really believe in things like ghosts and spirits and hauntings and all that. Yet you know that's what I write about. And for me, the question was. When, when someone says, okay, this person has the gift or they're gifted, what does that mean? How does that, how, how do they experience that? You know? And, and so that's where the concept of the river came from. It was a way to explain what, how someone who's gifted actually sees a ghost or sees other things that are going on around us that most of us don't see. And it's like a flow of information that's coming at them that they can interpret. And it might be a ghost. It might be an object that's not really an object. It's really something else. And they can interpret it and interact with it when they enter this place that they all call the river. Gotcha. So, so the river is kind of a state of being? or State of being that's around all of us. It's a way to see these things that, 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 uh, that a normal person can't see, but a, a gifted person can see. It was a way to put some kind of uh, physicality around the concept of being gifted and what that meant, instead of it just being this vague term. Uh, so the, the characters in my main series are, you know, at least the ones who have the gift, and you know, the main characters are able to access this flow. And, and the first book for me was, a lot, was about this main character overcoming his skepticism enough to realize that he was capable of doing it and, and how to do it. Uh, and the, his father plays a role in teaching him that. 
the downwinders was about everything happening in uh, southern Nevada, a group, well, a group of characters in southern Nevada and, and southern Utah, uh, in the fallout zone of the new testing that happened in Nevada in the you know, 60s. And the results of that radiation upon the river. And so, uh, you know, when I, when I lived down in uh, Laverkin back in the early 70s, I can't tell you how many people I would see dying of leukemia and, and other weird little cancers. I mean, there were a lot of people suffering from the whole, the whole idea of, uh, you know, the fallout. I mean, St. George, right in the heart of the fallout cone of all that nuclear testing that happened in Nevada. And, you know, it blew across uh, southern, southern Utah and northern Arizona. And, uh, and what I was interested in was, okay, well, we know what happened to people and, you know, the environment as a result of that. But what if there's this other thing there also called the river with all this other information, did that have any impact on any of that? And so, yeah, I mean, a whole other storyline with ghosts that are extremely violent and capable of becoming corporeal and, and uh, attacking. And uh, it started a whole new storyline, so it, a whole new series. And uh, the characters who are set in southern Utah battle in that environment, which is different than the, the, the setting in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, which is where my main series is set. So to, to continue with an analogy, well, yeah, with with the analogy we had earlier with Walking Dead, would this be somewhat akin to the Walking Dead, and then Fear of the Walking Dead? No, because Fear of the Walking Dead is much much better than the Walking <laughs> Dead, and I, I probably lost half the audience right there. But um, that's no, okay. No, it's just it's a different storyline with different characters. I mean, they they interact with the main series characters, uh, but you're right; it's uh, it's set in the same universe. Um, Fear of the Walking Dead jumped back in time so you could experience um, the immediate aftermath of whatever the event was that caused this uh, zombie apocalypse, right? Whereas The Walking Dead was later, a little bit later. Um, for me, it's all happening simultaneously. I mean, directors go down to Southern Utah to solve the mystery and get involved with the characters who are down there. And they were such fun characters to write. It was, I think, in my sixth book called Devil's Throat, and it's like, okay, these characters have to continue on on their own. And so that's, that's how that series was born. And uh, there's eight books in that series, the last of which is called The Remains, that came out in July. Gotcha. Well, uh, Mike, when we talk about uh, horror and such, do you have any particular uh, influences? We mentioned Stephen King and Neil Gaiman and uh, you know, a few others and some TV shows. I remember watching The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix and thinking, oh my gosh, I was inspired with horror. Do you have uh, inspirations like that, particular works? Well, The the Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, you know, the, Mike, the Mike Flanagan uh, series, right? That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fan, fantastic stuff. I mean, he, he's, he's somebody who understands how to do Stephen King as well, which is why he's doing Dr. Sleep and he did Gerald's Game. And I think it takes the right touch to make a Stephen King film and, and he gets it he, he knows how to scare you so i'm very much looking forward to dr sleep to see what he does with that um yeah as other influences certainly i'm influenced by all the current uh, popular media in, in horror i pay attention to most of it there's a lot of um classic horror that that i just always sticks with me um as far as other authors go i you know stephen king for sure but you know there's other there's other writers too like uh, clive barker and uh, I mean, some of Clive Barker's stuff is just—I mean, especially his early stuff. I mean, it is out there. Right. It is—it is weird, and it's so—you—it's like, how did he come up with this? It's so wild. So that was an influence, and I think that pops—you know—that that kind of thing occurs in my books, where um, it's like, well, here's something from left field. Right. Uh, that's how that shows up. Um, and as far as as far as television goes, you know. You have to be really careful. I deliberately, while I was writing the Cold Water Haunting, I really wanted to stop and watch the Haunting Hill House because it looked so good. And I was getting recommendations from so many people about it, but I was afraid it would seep into what I was writing at the time, which was a haunted house story. Right. So, so I just just like, nope, I'll wait till I'm done, <laughs> and I'll, <laughs> then I'll watch it. And I'm glad I did, and it was fantastic. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, tropes and. 
you try to avoid them, but they're going to work their way in because they're just classic mechanisms that work in horror. And uh, they, you know, so those influences seep in one way or another. Right. Well, I have to ask, uh, this is just because this is one of the best horror experiences I've had recently. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, have you seen The Autopsy of Jane Doe? No. Oh, my word. Uh, I don't okay. want to, uh, let me just put it this way. And this is me putting a little plug out there. Uh, and by the way, I put your books, uh, the ones I've read, and I have read quite a few of them, uh, up there with this kind of writing. I, I thoroughly enjoy them. And uh, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, when I first started watching this movie, I thought it was going to be kind of, I don't know, a, a Grisham mystery or an Agatha Christie mystery where they find a body and they're, you know, perform an autopsy to try and find out who the murderer was. The only thing I can say, and I'm not going to give away anything here except for the fact that, you know, that's, that's not the case, is that do not watch it alone. Do not watch it late at night. Make sure there are plenty of lights on and get ready for the ride. Uh, well, that. Isn't that about the, the best compliment you can give a horror story? Absolutely. Because it's going to scare you. And and if you want to enjoy a horror story, watch it alone in the dark. Don't be stupid and watch it in the middle of the day. Right. <laughs> I mean, don't waste your time. You know, go yeah. for it. I will tell you, that this one, uh, you might need an autopsy of your own if you do watch it alone and uh, it's is dark. Is on night. Netflix? It uh, is. Oh, yes, it is. Know. I'll have to add it to my list. Then. Well, I have to tell you, the reactions that when Christina and I watched it, uh, we we screamed out loud. Screamed out loud and were horrified. I, I Haunting of Hill House. Uh, Haunting there of were, Hill There were two or, yeah, there were there were two or three sequences in that in that series that I just like that may be one of the most frightening things I've ever seen. <laughs> well, the the reason I bring that up particularly with uh, autopsy of Jane Doe is that I remember I was sitting in the living room, I don't know, doing something very important. I don't know, playing chess on my phone or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the back room, I knew Christina was reading. And I heard a scream and some pretty, <laughs> uh, some pretty, uh, shall we say, uh, excited, scared breathing. And I came in to make sure everything was okay. I mean, our dog ran out of the room when she did it. I mean, totally terrified her. She was mm-hmm. reading your book. Oh, boy. You. And uh, it, it was your standalone awesome. novel, yeah. And uh, I thought it's what hard it, to get a scream out of a book. I mean, usually you know something on the screen is one thing, but wow, she was that. caught up, absolutely caught up. And we, we talk about how that's a standalone novel. She talked about how when she was done reading it, she wanted more. Do you write with the intention of leaving that opening for more books, or does it even concern you? Some sometimes. Um, with the cold water haunting, um, the explanation of what was going on in the house was so big that I could only show little pieces of it. And then the challenge, and then you go, okay, well, it's going to take another book or two to uh, explain it all. Mm-hmm. But the challenge with that, of course, is, however, I need to make this first book satisfying in and of itself, even though the, I can't reveal everything behind what's gone on right so the challenge becomes how do I, how do you have a, a satisfying climax and, and reach a an, an ending that readers will be happy with while still having all that other stuff perhaps unexplained or waiting to be explained and people don't feel ripped off by that so if, if that's how she felt at the end of it that's perfect right well that's that's how she felt uh, yeah because I in that particular book yeah there's there was so much more around why. Uh, why those events have occurred that I'm hoping to get to with uh, perhaps it, it, probably a trilogy in that case. With my series books um, like The River of the Downwinders, absolutely you have to you have to know where you're you're going with the next one. Right. By the time you finish the current one, but with other the, the other standalone books that I've written, yeah, I guess so. I mean, it, you could certainly write sequels to them. I mean, everyone, you know. It's not like the shark died at the end. So. <laughs> well, they still came out with three sequels beyond that. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> and one in 3D. <laughs> well, let me, you, you mentioned earlier that you uh, were into self-publishing. What is mm-hmm. that, and how does that work? Well, it used to be that in order to be published, you would, you'd have to get a book deal from one of the big publishing houses, which, you know, was you know, one in 10,000 aspiring writers might, might get. 
Um, but with Amazon and the arrival of these other platforms, um, anybody can publish. And the marketplace decides, you know, what's good and what isn't in terms of what people will buy. So, um, you know, books that aren't very good get poorly reviewed and books that are get good reviews. And people tend to key off that in making their buying decisions. Um, but, yeah, nowadays, you know, as long as you're willing to put in the effort and understand a few basics about what you need to do to get it onto Amazon, uh, both as a, a an electronic book, an e-book, which sells you know, 100 times more than a paper copy. Right. Or, uh, or, or to get um, a paperback or a hardbound into that uh, marketplace, you're right there with, uh, with everybody else, including the ones who are being published you know, by these big publishing houses who take a much bigger chunk of your royalties than, uh, than the situation I'm in. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a new environment. I mean, people, people who've, who would never have been published... Maybe in some cases shouldn't have been published, right? Uh, but in other cases, is they've got stuff that's really good um, and that people want. I mean, like I said, a lot of my readers just devour. You know, while they're waiting four months for my next one, they're busy devouring. You know, two or three books a day from some other from some other writer, right? Which is which is just awesome because it's it's given so many people a, an opportunity to jump into writing. And, and have an outlet for it that they never would have had before. Well, uh, for those people who maybe are thinking about jumping into writing, or they've been inspired with a story that they have to tell, or a story that they've been thinking about, where would you send them to get this information, to get them going? It took a lot of digging around on the Internet to figure out the whole business. Um, you know, you'll, you'll find some places that'll offer you a crash course in it or something like that. You could do that kind of thing. Or you could poke around until you figure it out. Um, the danger, I think, with that is that the problem isn't so much figuring that out as it is in actually writing a novel. I just know so many people who get wrapped up in finding out how to be an author, but they don't stop to write. Right. And so they, they don't actually have anything to publish at the end of the day. So the, I think the main thing is, if you want to write, develop a routine that'll do that for you. Very hard to do if you've got another job. Right. And you're, you're having to carve time out of either your leisure time, your family time, or something to to find that half hour or an hour to do it. But if you'll establish a routine of a way to do that, and then don't let that carved out time become something where, oh, I'm going to go on the Internet and just read what Stephen King has to say about writing. Or, or are the million different ways there are to, to take up your time, as opposed to actually starting up right. <laughs> Word... <laughs> And typing out a story, um, that's the biggest challenge. Once you get something done, you can poke around on the Internet, and you'll find, you'll find plenty of websites that will direct you on, you know, guide you as to, oh, here's how to get this onto Amazon. It doesn't cost anything. There's people who will charge you to do it. If you want to pay them because you don't want to deal with the, the technology of it, that's fine, too, but I don't. Right. I just, inter- I just interact directly with Amazon. Well, that's... Uh... Mike, do you have any aspirations with your books as far as uh, giving them to Hollywood or having somebody make a film of them or having these universes expanded? Maybe not so far as, you know, Harry Potter world at Universal, uh, maybe that far. But uh, do you have any aspirations of these stories beyond these books? Oh, a theme park would be awesome. <laughs> I'll take it. No, I have, I have uh, to be honest with you, I have zero aspirations. Um, it, it, every now and again, I'll, I'll get a, someone will write me and say, they, you know, they, they see it as a TV show or something like this, and they'll give me their ideas for casting or something like that. I enjoy <laughs> the hell out of that stuff. Right. That's just fun. But I have, I have zero expectations of any of that because I just don't think it's realistic. <laughs> um, I, I also think there's a challenge to, with the type of stuff that I'm writing as to how to depict it visually. Right. Um, you know, that flow of information I was describing. Um, it's one thing to, you know, have a zombie TV series or vampire or whatever whatever category of, of horror you're, you're in. Ghosts are tricky, um, but these characters and the way in which they see things within the river makes it... I, it's, I just can't even imagine... I know my readers have it in their heads how it works, mm-hmm. but I don't know how you'd present it on screen in a way that works. Right. So that's a huge 
challenge for for my stuff. Do you ever find yourself casting your own characters, or uh, when you're coming up with the physicalization of them, actually using real life people, actors, or people in your life? You know, I never have. Really, they just they just not, pop in there. Not, not a sing, not a single one of the characters in my books have I ever have I ever thought, oh, they're like this person. As That's great. An actor or any kind of mental casting. I've had people tell me. <laughs> this Clearly, this is this no, person. No, yeah, no. I I have never. It's never even occurred to me, um, like who would be Stephen or Roy. No idea at all. Gotcha. Well, it's uh, for our listeners out there, and we are hoping, or we're hoping that we are in double digits now with our listeners. So this might actually help us. Ooh, you uh, got a counter? <laughs> we we have a, a fictional counter. And uh, last season, <laughs> in season three, uh, we started giving away swag to our guests, and the swag consisted of post-it notes with smiley faces on them and such. We're we're high class here. Uh, hey, but, that's an awesome bit of swag. I'll take one. <laughs> we'll mail it to you. How's, <laughs> I'll email you a PDF of that. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, let me ask you, if anybody who's listening wants to get a hold of one of your books, where do they go? Go to Amazon and type in Michael Richen. Hey. That's do. And that's okay. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, Richen, R-I-C-H-A-N. Do I have that right? Right. Yep, you got it right. And they're gonna, you'll, you'll find at least one of my books, and from there, click on my name, and you'll go to my author page, and then you can see it all. I mean, I have a website, too, which is michaelrichen.com. All my books are listed there. Um, I have a suggested reading order there because the the plots and characters do intertwine between the three series. So mm-hmm. if you're just getting started, following the suggested reading order might be a good idea. Um, but yeah, just even even if you just Google Michael Richin, you're going to get there. Fantastic. Well, and let me ask you just a, a final question. We are running out of time here, but we still have a little bit left. Um, you write horror. Are you looking to write any other genre? Um, that's a really good question. I, you know, every now and again, I, I think about it. Um, there, there was one novel I wrote uh, called Slaughter, Idaho, that's um, more sci-fi horror than it is straight-up horror or ghost horror. Most of the stuff I write is ghost horror. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, I've thought about it. I might. I, 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 we'll see. Okay. It, 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 the next three books that I have planned out in my head are all within this within this universe and are part of, you know, the wild and weird stuff that I write. Right. So it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but I would, sure. Well, Michael Richen, thank you so much for joining us on On the Arts. It was a wonderful conversation, as it always is. And sadly, we are running out of time. We're heading up to the hard break. Thank you very much, Michael. I'll give you a call afterwards and we can finish up this conversation. But to all of, our, all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening to Michael Richen. I hope you check out his books, R-I-C-H-A-N. And until then, keep your focus on the arts. You've been listening to On the Arts with Michael and Christina Harding. Search Facebook, YouTube, Podbean, Spotify for Radio St. George to view video and podcasts of this show. Or go to RadioStGeorge.com. Join us Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 for On the Arts on Radio St. George 100.3.